If you're a fan of sci-fi or horror or fantasy, you probably heard the name Azazel. The X-Men comics and movies feature a mutant named Azazel. In the Denzel Washington film Fallen, Azazel is a fallen angel that is able to possess people. In the CW TV series Supernatural, Azazel, a demon, is the main antagonist in seasons one and two. In the miniseries Fallen, Azazel appears in the second part. Now, what you might not know is that Azazel is in the Bible. These films and the shows are knockoffs of the Word of God. They get the name from the Bible. I thought we were studying the Feast of the Lord. Well, we are. I'm talking about Azazel because he is especially associated with the Day of Atonement, the sixth calendar feast, and the second of the three fall feasts. Now, let me give you a quick review of that feast and then we'll return to talking about Azazel and some other things. So if you're in Leviticus 23, verse 26 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict your souls. On the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Now, the precise rituals for the Day of Atonement are described in chapter 16 of Leviticus. I'm going to summarize them in a moment. You might know the Day of Atonement by its other name, Yom Kippur. This term Yom Kippur is actually plural in the Bible. It's Yom HaKippurim. The rituals performed by the high priest on that day cleansed from a multitude of transgressions and iniquities and sins. And so it's, uh, it's a plural. It fell on the 10th day of the month, Tishri. You might recall from our last study that the so-called Feast of Trumpets was the day that two witnesses determined the full moon had begun, and it was therefore the first day of the month of Tishri. Once that announcement was made, the Jews then had 10 days to repent of their sins leading up to Yom Kippur, which was a day of mourning and uh, repentance. One commentator noted the following regarding the timing of Yom Kippur. He said this, According to the Jewish sages, on the 6th of Sivan, seven weeks after the Exodus, exactly 49 days, Moses first ascended Sinai to receive the law. Forty days later, on the 17th of Tammuz, the tablets were broken. Moses then interceded for Israel for another 40 days until he was called back up to Sinai on Elul 1, was given the second tablets and returned to the camp on Tishri 10, which was later called Yom Kippur. And so they tie in all these different events, uh, counting them down on the calendar. The root word Kippur is kafar, uh, which probably derives from the word kofar, meaning ransom. And this word is parallel to the word redeem. It's used that way in Psalm 49, verse 7. It means to atone by offering a substitute. And so the Day of Atonement was Israel's annual cleansing from sin 
by the offering of substitutes on their behalf. Uh, and so we'll see that certain animals took the place of the Israelites before the Lord uh, as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to make an offering. Specifically, the Day of Atonement ritual required a ram, a bull, and two goats. Now, this is from Leviticus 16. I told you I'd uh, get to that, and here it is. The ram was for a burnt offering, a general offering aimed at pleasing God. The bull was taken from the herd, served as a sin offering for Aaron, the priest, and his family. The purpose of the sin offering was purification. It restored an individual to ritual purity to allow that person to occupy sacred space to be near God's presence. And so the, uh, the priest, the high priest that was going into the Holy of Holies had to have this sacrifice before he went in. He had to purify himself by a substitutionary sacrifice. You remember the... Uh, a lot of times we think, when we think of the temple, we think of this huge, that um, model that you see in Jerusalem of Herod's temple with all of the courtyards and uh, all of the walls and things like that. But when we really talk about the temple, uh, we're looking at just two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies. So the high priest would go into the holy place where there's a little bit of furniture and then through the veil into the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat were and there he would offer the offering once a year. And so a lot of times people say, well, you know, how can they, how can they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem because it's such a massive structure? It actually isn't. And they could throw up tents if they wanted to because the tabernacle in the wilderness was, was a portable tent. It's not even very big. Uh, and so it would be super easy to build a temple or a tabernacle uh, on that spot um, once they determine what spot it is. And so the priest had to offer for himself so that he could go in. And this is where some people say it's legendary, some people say it's true, uh, where they would tie a rope around his leg, one of his feet, ankles, and he had bells on the bottom of his uh, garments. Uh, that way if they quit hearing him move around... They would drag him out because they knew that the Lord had struck him dead uh, because he wasn't ritually pure. And so I don't know, I don't know if that's true or not. I, some sources say it is. Some say it isn't. It's not in the Bible as far as I can tell. Uh, but um, anyway, um, it, it shows you the, um, the gravity of the situation. And so the bull was for the priest. And then there were two goats. They were needed for a sin offering for the people. Yom Kippur was the only time the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and call upon the name of Yahweh to offer blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. This life for a life principle is the foundation of the sacrificial system, and it marked the great day of intercession made by the high priest on behalf of Israel. One Yom Kippur ritual stands out because it was just really odd. It was the only time they ever did this, and it's, just, it's very strange. Remember I said that there were two goats the high priest would cast lots over the two goats, resulting in one being chosen for sacrifice for the Lord. The blood of that goat would purify the people. The second goat was not sacrificed and was not for the Lord. It was for someone or something else. Leviticus 16.8 says this, Then Aaron casts lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now, this goat symbolically carried away the sins from the camp of Israel into the wilderness. I'll read from Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 20. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, 
the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all of their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And so this was kind of weird. Um, the second goat would symbolically receive the sins of Israel, and then it would be led out of the city into the wilderness. This from a Jewish encyclopedia. The second goat had to be led away by a designated man to the designated location called wilderness. There was a distance of five Sabbath days journey to that place. Different precautions were taken to make sure that the goat was led there and would never return. At equal intervals along the road from the Mount of Olives to the designated location, ten stations were set up. After the man and the goat reached the tenth station, the man would push the goat over a cliff so that it would fall to its death. Now, the second goat is typically called the scapegoat, and that's how we know it. But here is where we can return to Azazel. I'm going to quote Dr. Michael Heiser, who's a language scholar. If you use the Logos Bible software, he uh, has translated a lot of that. And so he's a, he's a guy that knows what he's talking about. He says, the word Azazel in Hebrew can be translated the goat that goes away. This is the justification for the common scapegoat translation in versions like the NIV, the NSAB, uh, the New American Standard Bible, and the King James Version. The scapegoat, so the translator has it, symbolically carries away the sins of the people from the camp of Israel into the wilderness. However, Azazel could also be a proper name. In Leviticus 16.8, one goat is for Yahweh while the other goat is for Azazel. Since Yahweh is a proper name and the goats are described in the same way, Hebrew parallelism suggests Azazel is also a proper name, which is why more recent translations sensitive to the literary character of the Hebrew text read Azazel and not scapegoat. And so the uh, English Standard Version and the New Revised Standard Version and other Bibles have the word Azazel. And so here's where it gets interesting. Azazel is the well-known name of a demon in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other ancient Jewish books. In fact, one scroll, in one of them, Azazel is the leader of the angels that sinned in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And the same description of Azazel as that lead fallen angel appears in the book of First Enoch. And so Azazel was a name well known to the Jews as the name of a powerful demon. One source noted, Azazel enjoys the distinction of being the most mysterious extra-human character in sacred literature. And so his, the name is in the Bible here, sometimes translated scapegoat, but we think it's possible that it's referring to this demon who's referenced in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in, uh, by Enoch in his book. Azazel is obviously the better translation and was understood by the original Jewish audience to be a powerful demon. We try to downplay Azazel because, quite frankly, we shy away from the supernatural. We don't, we don't like to talk about these things. And we think these ancient peoples were just superstitious whereas we are more scientific. If you do a lot of reading, 
among conservative scholars, they're Christians, but even in the New Testament where they talk about demon possession and demonization and stuff, they, they like to say instead that it was epilepsy or some kind of a mental disorder. Uh, we, we seem to have a real problem talking about demons and the fact that they uh, exist and, and do nefarious things. And so given the opportunity to translate a word as scapegoat rather than Azazel, even though these scholars know that Azazel is a well-known demon to the Jewish audience that was being written to, they go with scapegoat because we feel like we have a, a, a more rational worldview than these ancient people. Now, this goat for Azazel wasn't a payment for ransom or redemption. They weren't buying him off. It was to banish the sins of Israel outside the camp, out to the wilderness. The wilderness can be understood as a type of the world ruled by Satan and his fallen angels. For example, it was in the wilderness that Satan exerted his authority by tempting Jesus. Now, I mean, we don't think much of that, but, but why, why be driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit 40 days and 40 nights and then have the devil come to you there? The devil can tempt you anywhere. Uh, but it was believed by the Jews that these wilderness areas uh, were inhabited by demons and, and it's symbolic of the fact that you have Israel and the camp of Israel, as it were, and, and where God's presence dwells, and then everything outside of that was unholy and ruled by these other demonic forces. We therefore see Israel declared holy by the substitutionary sacrifice of the goat, while Israel's sins are sent away from them, acknowledging a realm of evil ruled by a demon, and then into a pit. Now that's interesting. Because, um, so they, they sent this away and it went into a pit. It's our belief that the three fall feasts communicate the second coming of Jesus, that we've made no secret about that. The first feasts uh, communicated his first coming, and now these fall feasts communicate his second coming. We saw last week how Jesus in Matthew 24 used a Jewish idiom that indicated he'd be returning on Tishri 1 as the great tribulation ended. The second coming will be the day of atonement for the Jewish remnant. We're told they will look upon him whom they've pierced, repent of their sins, and receive him as their Messiah. And so it's a time of national repentance and the receiving of Christ. And so uh, that is the fulfillment of the day of atonement. But there's something else, something we normally overlook because we think of the scapegoat rather than Azazel. One of the first things that Jesus does upon his return to earth is what? He binds the devil and he incarcerates him in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. We see in this the fulfillment of the second goat ritual. Just as that goat is sent away and banished, so Satan is sent away, banished for the duration of the millennial kingdom. Something else weird, but that points to Azazel. Listen to this. This is from Leviticus 17, verse 7. In fact, you might want to read this. Um, because you probably don't believe it's in the Bible, Leviticus 17, 7. It says, They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. It seems that the Israelites, while in Egypt, had acquired the practice of offering sacrifices to demons. The particular words used indicate a, living, a, a demon living in the desert. Here's the same verse in the Amplified Version. It says, 
So they shall no more offer their sacrifices to goat-like gods or demons or field spirits after which they have played the harlot. This, uh, this shall be a statue forever to them throughout their generations. And so it's another confirmation that the Jews at the time of the Exodus who came out of Egypt were familiar with wilderness demons. They believed that there were demons of the wilderness that had something to do with goats. One final thought. I said that the wilderness can typify the world, the rule of Satan. In our age, Satan is called the god of this world, as a matter of fact. He's the prince of the power of the air and the god of this world. In the New Testament, there's an episode in the church at Corinth in which the Apostle Paul suggests a discipline for a believer who was living in sin. The man is fornicating with his father's wife, and Paul wanted the man removed from the fellowship. The Corinthians thought that they were being gracious, extending grace. Uh, people would come in and they'd say, hey, isn't that guy living with his father's wife? What, what's that all about? They said, well, praise the Lord, you know, we're extending grace and mercy and that kind of thing. Paul said, hey, I'll tell you what I would do and what I want you to do right now is kick him out of the church. In fact, Paul said, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Inside the church, the man, even though he was living in gross sin, was enjoying a certain amount of spiritual protection. He was enjoying the presence of God among the other believers. And Paul said, that has to stop. You need to get him out of the church. And what is outside of the church? Paul says, Satan's outside of the church where he can have the destruction of his flesh. And so... It's this same concept that uh, where the people of God are is holy and, and wonderful, uh, and outside of that protection is a realm of demons and uh, a, a place of disaster, more like Satan's territory. And so um, this is all really super interesting because I realize that we sometimes miss things the Bible is telling us because of what might be called our modern sensibilities. If the Bible mentions a demon, but we can find some other way to translate his name, let's go for that every time. But instead, we should just take what is written and bring it into our understanding and understand what the original audience would have thought and what they would have received from it. And so this idea of the scapegoat uh, is, is a lot more symbolic now than it's ever been because... <laughs> It's typical of Jesus binding the devil and putting him in a pit for a thousand years. And that helps us tie in the Day of Atonement to the second coming of Christ. Final feast is what? Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. Uh, we'll look at that next time we're together, which symbolizes the dwelling of God among men, uh, which is ultimately what happens in the second coming. The Lord comes back. The Jews receive him, he judges the nations, and then he establishes the millennial kingdom where he reigns and rules for a thousand years uh, uh, with us reigning and ruling with him, but he is tabernacling with men. And so these feasts, fantastic uh, in their prophetic significance and to just see what God is up to, but also a little bit of uh, some deeper things that you can get into from time to time. Next time you're watching something and you hear the name Azazel, uh, you'll know that they stole it from the Bible uh, where he plays kind of a major part on the Day of Atonement. Let's pray and then we'll uh, continue our night.